why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Hosea, that's where we're at, and uh, if you guys have been with us for the uh, past several weeks, you know that we started in the book of Hosea, as we're going to continue. What I want to do this morning is I'm going to begin by reading a few verses of chapter 2, that's where we're at, chapter 2. So I'll pick it up at around verse 16, I'll read to the end of the chapter, I'll pray, and we'll begin to take a look at this. Um, Hosea is written by a guy named Hosea. He's a prophet. God called him to uh, marry a prostitute. Um, and the reason why God called him to marry the prostitute was because God was saying, Hosea, I not only want you to just uh, give a message, I also want you to live the message. I want you to be a living parable. I want you to be something uh, that people can look at and observe what it is like to be married to Israel. Because God's whole point is that I'm also married. I'm married to Israel. And God's point is that Israel is a... A defiled bride, meaning she is constantly prostituting herself, giving herself away to all sorts of other lovers. And God is communicating his message via the prophet Hosea uh, in a very tangible, very graphic, in a lot of ways, very painful way. So you'd imagine if God had called someone like you or I to go marry someone that we knew they were going to betray us. How absolutely, incredibly alienating and painful and marginalizing that would feel. And that's what God called Hosea to do. In a lot of ways, the whole point in, again, as like I already mentioned, is God is wanting to point out to the people of Israel that this is exactly what the relationship is like on an analogous way between me and the people of Israel. So, we'll pick it up. God made some promises that he was going to bring about uh, changes in the relationship. And what God is going to be saying now is giving this promise of a hopeful restoration. So, we'll read that in verse 16. It starts here. It says this, And in that day... Declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth will answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they will answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. God, we ask you right now that you would just help speak this word. God, we can read this, but God, what we really need is we need revelation. We need your eyes to be giving us light. God, that your eye would guide us, direct us, illuminate, speak truth. God, remove blinders from off of our hearts. God, our hearts are oftentimes cold and our ears are dull of hearing and our eyes oftentimes grow faint. And so we ask you, God, right now that you would just give us the ability to hear, give us ears to understand, give us eyes to see, give us hearts, God, that are warmed to being changed and molded and shaped by your sacred and your holy word. And we ask all of these things in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. So what I want to start with is just three specific things that we'll take a look at. And the first thing I'll kind of give by way of an outline is 
that we're going to take a look at God's problem with Israel. And I'll kind of unpack that in a moment, but God has a problem. And the problem is that God has a problem with his people Israel. And I'll unpack that more in a second. The second thing we'll take a look at is God's promise. So if you were paying attention in the verse that we just read, there are three promises that God made. And three promises that God made were in the form of in that day or when that day comes. Those are the different promises that God makes. And the final thing we'll take a look at is God's plan. In other words, how will God get from point A to point B? What's God's plan in unfolding what he's about to do? So first of all, let's begin to try to understand a little bit about what the problem is. So the first thing I want you to notice is, I'll put this into the form of a question to try to help us kind of bring some clarity to it. So the next slide, the question basically will be asked this way. How can God remove the problem of Israel's destructive love affair with idols without destroying her? This is the dilemma. This is the problem. So if God is a husband, if Israel is a bride, uh, I've said this a little bit last week, I should probably say it again. Um, some of the content, just FYI, if you've got kids that are probably between the ages of, I don't know, 7, 10, um, some of this content may be a little bit like PG-13-ish, um, so just FYI, be aware. So there you go, disclaimer. Um, the point of the matter is, is that God is a husband. He's married to his people. Israel. They are his bride. The problem with Israel is not just simply that Israel is going out prostituting herself. In other words, it's not just simply mindless acts of wickedness, of evil. It's that Israel has a greater problem. The real problem with Israel is that Israel loves foreign gods. Israel is in a love affair with alternative gods. We said this a little bit last week. This is not just simply a love triangle. This is a love polygon. And it's not just simply Israel doing bad things every once in a while. And one of the things I've noticed over the years, I've, you know, I've had the opportunity um, of doing a lot of counseling. And one of the things I've discovered oftentimes is that if, for example, in a marriage, there is a mindless act of you know, downloading porn or a spouse betraying you know, a one-time occasional type scenario, that's different than finding out that one spouse actually has fallen in love with somebody else. Both painful. One is more painful than the other. Because one doesn't just simply involve actions, it involves the heart. God looks at his bride, whom he loves. And the problem with Israel is not just simply that Israel has sinned, it's that Israel has actually given her heart away to false gods. And so the question again, in that poignant idea is think about this, is how can God remove the problem of Israel's destructive love affair with idols without destroying her? So I think all of us would agree that if you've ever known somebody that's been in a relationship that's abusive in a marriage like that where, say, a spouse is either being physically or verbally abusive or is addicted to sexual relationships outside of the marriage relationship, and if they've been called on it and there is no change, no repentance, no transformation, all of us would recognize, obviously, that something has to change. Some of the reasons why if a spouse finds out that a husband has been downloading porn or finds out that the wife is downloading porn, um, at some point that reaches a climactic point where they sit down and they're like, something has to change. This cannot continue. We've got to change. We've got to get rid of the internet. We've got to go to counseling. We've got to do something to repair that which is broken because we all recognize that that, that sin, that wickedness, that evil cannot simultaneously be allowed to coexist with a healthy marriage relationship. We're all on the same page with that? You guys all understand that? I think we'd all be in absolute agreement with that because all, if you're not, all you got to do is think about put yourself in the place where you love somebody. You have given your heart entirely over to this person, but in the unfolding of that relationship, you come to find out that they actually have 
a list, a black book of all sorts of other numbers and lovers that they call regularly whenever you turn your back. So in your mind, you would either be right to say either A, you've got to get your heart right in sync with mine, whereby we are in right relationship, or you're not going to be my girlfriend anymore. You're not going to be my boyfriend anymore. You're not going to be my husband or my wife anymore. We would call that action of divorce judgment. It's, it's, it's a just action. It's setting sort of the record straight. And what that is, is basically saying because there is no separation of the act of sin from the person who is sinning, there's no repentance. That's what repentance does. Repentance is basically a severing. Okay, you got to understand that. Repentance basically says, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm changed. I'm done. I'm walking away from that. And therefore, I'm going to be a different person. When there's no repentance, something needs to be done. And with that thing that we describe that needs to be done is we call divorce. And what divorce is, is basically casting out the sin, the sin and the sinner. Does that make sense? Because they're one in the same. There's no distinction. There's no clarification between the two. They become commingled. In other words, if you Think of it this way. Cancer's overtaken the entire body. And there's no distinction, no way to actually separate the cancer from the patient. And they become one. We call that death. Divorce is always death. God doesn't want to divorce his bride. Why? He loves her. He cannot stop loving her. I want you to pause and think for a moment. Just pause and meditate upon the love of God in this act of God. God has full right to divorce himself from his bride. He has full right to cast her out because there's not repentance. There's not this like recognition. Yeah, you're right. We've been worshiping bowels. We've been going out after this pantheon of gods and giving our hearts away to this other. Israel's like, nope. God says, I, I, I can't move myself to cast you out because I'm so in love with you. That love is absolutely not in this world. We don't see that type of love. We don't find that love resident in our hearts naturally. This is otherworldly love. This is love that comes from God. It's what we've described from the beginning. It's, it's not just simply unconditional love meaning God loves us without conditions. It's contra-conditional love, meaning that contrary to what you deserve. He loves you, loves you, loves you. So God has this problem. How can he remove the problem of Israel's destructive love affair with idols without actually destroying her? That's going to move on into the next thing because God then begins to make some promises and we'll begin to unpack some of these things. So the first promise we'll take a look at three of which is what we'll call the promise of reconciliation. So take a look at verses 16 to 17. Verses 16 to 17, it says this. And in that day, declares the Lord. So again, you're gonna see these uh, phrases, three phrases. In that day, uh, later on down, you're gonna see another phrase that arises. It says on that day, and then again, finally, it's gonna end with in that day. So three phrases. These are promises that God's making of one day restoring his people back to himself. We'll get to how God is going to do that in just a moment. In other words, the plan. We'll finish with that. So first of all, we'll see this promise of reconciliation. Verse 16, it says, On that day, or in that day, declares the Lord, uh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they will not be remembered by name no more. And then what God is basically saying here 
is he says, I'm going to reconcile you to myself. Relationship will be brought back to what it should have been at the very beginning. In other words, things will come back together again. Do you know that our God is a God of reconciliation? That that's how God works. God's people should be people who demonstrate reconciliation. When God's people don't demonstrate reconciliation, all we're simply doing is we're basically just demonstrating the way the typical world works. When people actually reconcile, begin to work towards an end where there's unity and peace and love, not just simply uh, coming together in terms of sort of cordial relationship, but I'm talking embrace. They're actually operating according to the way things will be. Or to put it into another language or another context, they're actually operating in fulfillment of the prayer that Jesus said when you pray, our Father, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, let your kingdom come on earth, as it, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what Jesus is teaching his people to pray, pray now that God's kingdom will come now, not in its fullness, but in, 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 as like a trailer, as like a movie trailer to display what things will be like then. The language that people will speak in that, le- in that kingdom to come is the language of love. When Jesus says, when you learn to talk in that language, when you learn to live out that language, that lifestyle, you're actually living according to who you are, who he's made you to be. When you don't live according to that, when you choose to harbor bitterness and anger and frustration, and you choose to gossip, or you choose to be angry, you choose to hold on to things, or you choose to you know, involve yourself in relationships and you take advantage of other people and all this sort of thing. What, what you're really doing is you're not living according to the life that Jesus says leads to flourishing. You're, you're not, the way that Paul would put it, you're walking in the flesh. To walk in the spirit is to walk in the way that you will one day walk when Jesus fully comes and his kingdom is fully realized. So that being said, what he's really saying is that I'm gonna restore and repair and reconcile Israel to this relationship with me the way that I had originally always intended. So there's this interesting connection that God says. Um, I will remove off of your lips the language of bowels. This might be a little bit confusing. We might not necessarily fully get it within a text because some of us might read that and think, well, why would Israel call God vow? And what God's actually saying is that the way that the Israelites would relate to God is they would actually call God vow rather than Jehovah. And some of us have kind of wondered, like, why? And the reality, the word bow can also mean, and has also been interpreted in other ways, as being my master or my husband, my leader. All of those words can actually be interchangeable with the word bow. And so what was happening was that Israel was in this relationship with God, but she was also saw herself trying to uh, bring in and incorporate some of the false religious beliefs throughout the land, and therefore they would relate to God by calling him Baal. Baal was the, uh, the false god of the land. Baal was identified as sort of the military might as well as sort of the god of fertility. And so when the people of Israel would then need rain to bring on, upon their crops in order to bring about flourishing, they would oftentimes engage in the worship of Baal. They would go to the Baal temple prostitutes. They would have sex with the temple prostitutes. They would pray to Baal. They would give their offering. And then they would wait for the rain to come. And when the rain would come, then they would say, ah, Baal gave us rain. Baal provided crops for us. Baal provided our flourishing. And God's saying there's going to come a day when I will remove utterly the name of Baal from off of your lips. And it will just be me. Not this commingling. So what God is saying 
part of this reconciliation will be that I will remove from you any trace of any counterfeit God. See, here's the interesting interesting thing about counterfeits. Counterfeits look so much like the genuine, don't they? They look so much like the genuine. That let's say, for example, if someone gave you a hundred dollar bill and like, check it out, here's a hundred dollar bill. Most of you, if you're like me, would be like, sweet, that's awesome. I don't see these very often, but thank you. That was great. And you would be excited to go use it. But then at some point in the, you know, outplaying of that conversation, you come to find out that's a false or a counterfeit dollar, counterfeit hundred dollars, that at that very moment, you begin to realize this thing's absolutely worthless. But during the duration of time in which you've kind of been seduced into thinking that it has value, you're thinking about how you're going to spend it. So the children of Israel, the people of Israel, just like you and I, sort of had these false, these relationships with these false gods, these counterfeit gods, and there was some element by which these false gods promised to take care of them. Look, at the end of the day, if false gods delivered nothing, they wouldn't be a problem, right? But because false gods, idolatry, in other words, Behind idolatry is sort of a demonic world, the way Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians, that there, there's a demonic world at work that's trying to seduce us and deceive us. So that rather than giving our hearts over to our creator, God who loves us, we have a tendency to give ourselves and give our hearts over to other false gods that really don't love us. But see, here's the interesting thing about counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods promise much, deliver little, and always carry hidden fees with compound interest that you end up paying. In other words, it's the fine print. And what God is saying is there's going to come a day when I will reconcile with my people Israel and there will be no trace of their love affair anywhere on their lips. Instead, in the place of their talking about God and who has sustained them, provided for them, taken care of them, they will say, Yahweh has provided for me, not Baal. So here's the thing. The reason why we run to false gods or counterfeit gods is because we have some hope that what they offer will come to pass. So for example, and to some degree, they actually have power to give us something. All right, again, how much power? I don't know, it's debatable. But the point of the, and at the end of the day, there is some sort of ability that they have to be able to give us what we want. If they had no ability to give us anything we want, they wouldn't be an issue. So for example, if you made an idol out of people's praise, in other words, that was the greatest thing that you longed for in your entire life, was living for the affirmation of other people. So in other words, you maybe, let's say you had a rough upbringing, and so you want to have people affirm you and like you and respect you. And when you find that they're not affirming you, not appreciating you, not liking you, that's painful for you. It's not just like, oh man, I wish I was affirmed. It's actually painful for you. You you actually, you become angry, you become upset because what's happening is that you've actually made the praise of other people an ultimate thing in your life. And when you get it, you feel on top of the world. When you don't have it, you feel very aggravated, very agitated, very upset. And the problem is, is that these gods have the ability to give you that affirmation to a point. But at some point, they will then begin to make demands upon you that you're not going to be able to pay. And you'll begin to find your heart will begin to crumble. Your relationships may begin to fall apart because... You've made something that's good, being affirmed, an ultimate thing. Being affirmed is a good thing. If your affirmation comes from Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with everything I've asked you to do. You've done it for the glory of my name. But when you make that an ultimate thing, these 
Counterfeit gods have the ability to give you some trace of praise, but at some point, it will then begin to make great demands of you that you will not be able to pay. So for example, you can also say, do you live, and if you live for financial security, if that's an ultimate thing, these little false gods, counterfeit gods, can actually maybe give you some semblance of financial security. You can have money. You can pad your bank account with it. You can feel safe and secure. But at some point, that financial security will grab a hold of your heart, and then you will not be free. So the way that this oftentimes works out is, again, like I said earlier, idols will oftentimes always cause us, they will make great promises to us, deliver something, deliver very little, but at some point they will then make great demands upon us with compound interest that we will have to pay, and at some point we begin to find out we can't pay, therefore we're trapped. And we fall into the category that Jesus would say, you sin, are slaves to sin. You're a slave. The way this works is everything starts out with desire. Desire then moves into craving. Craving moves into obsession. And obsession begins to flourish into addiction. Now you're trapped. So last week, the Old Testament word for idolatry, or, or you know, this, uh, the Old Testament word to describe our drift from God is idolatry. The New Testament word to describe our drift from God is desires. Desires. Our desires begin to control us. We have desires to be known as great. We have desires to have financial security. We have desires to make a relationship with somebody ultimate. Those desires lead us on this path where, as I already mentioned, it lead us, leads us on this path where it moves into this craving, then this obsession, and ultimately we have this addiction. We are then now trapped. And only thing that needs to happen for somebody who's trapped or addicted is they need an intervention. And this is what happened with Israel repeatedly. And God made this promise to the people of Israel. This is one of these days I'm going to make a promise to you, or I'm making a promise to you that one of these days there will be a promise of reconciliation. And I will remove from off of your lips any trace, any recollection, any speaking forth of the name of this false god, Baal. I will do that for you someday. The second thing we see is this promise of shalom. I'll describe it as shalom. Verses 18 to 20, he describes it this way. Listen. Uh, it says, and I will make for them a covenant. And on that day, of the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war in the land. I will make you lie down in safety and will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. There's two words that God uses in that little statement that we just read. It's absolutely powerful. What he describes is the word betroth and covenant. Both of those words are actual marriage language. What God is saying to his people of Israel is that even though you deserve to be divorced because you have been regularly, repeatedly in love and in bed with these false alternative lovers, God says, I'm going to remarry you. Sometimes we hear that and we're a little bit, we, we think a little bit about, you know, in its counterpart in the New Testament. We're like, here's what Jesus does. He takes an old trashy person and puts a little robe around them, and yet, even though they're dressed in this righteous robe, underneath that righteous white robe is this trashy old person. You ever felt that way? Like, maybe as a Christian today, you look at your life, and you're like, I'm just a messed up, screwed up person, but the reality is, oh, I'm washing the blood of Jesus Christ. But here's, that, that's not an accurate depiction of who you are. Actually, what God does is he basically resets the entire relationship. This is exactly what God did with Israel. 
And the promise that God was going to make with Israel was not that he was just going to simply repair that which is broken and somehow make it right again. Because the reality is, if you married someone without ever really getting rid of, removing the dirt, the inner dirt, I don't care how many times you get remarried. You're going to keep going back to these cycles of divorce over and over again because the real root causal problem has never been identified and dealt with. What you really need is a new heart. And what God promised Israel is that he's going to give them a brand new heart. What God promises to you is he will give you a new heart. And this is so radical. This is if God basically says, look, you've lived your whole life as a prostitute, giving yourself away, and in your heart of hearts you feel defiled, filthy, broken, ruined, broken down. And God, through grace, through Christ, what he has accomplished through Jesus, will make you a virgin all over again. It's absolutely crazy what God will do. But this is the promise he makes to Israel. This is the promise he makes to you. It's not just simply putting a dress on an old sleazy person saying, I'm going to marry that. It's like God saying, I'm going to make a brand new relationship. They're going to have a brand new heart, a brand new desire. They will want to be married to me. And that's what makes them pure. It's amazing. What that means? That means that no matter how filthy, how dirty you are, how much you've done in this life, how much you've failed, God, through grace, has the power, has the ability to Wash all of that away to start you out at square one all over again. It literally is like a brand new birth. Born again. Do you know how powerful that is? This is the hope that God offers you in the gospel. This is what Jesus promises. This is what Jesus promised to his people. It's the idea of shalom. But it's not just a personal shalom, all right? We can talk all we want and be like, isn't this amazing what Jesus did for me? But the reality is, it doesn't end there. Because the reality is, if you look at yourself carefully, you realize as sinners, people who do things that are out of order from God's ideal, doesn't just simply impact and affect us as individuals. I mean, you can look at your life and be like, I've done some bad things I'm really ashamed of. Things that even the closest people to me, they don't even know about my life. But if you're really honest with Yourself, most of the things that we do don't just simply impact and affect us negatively, don't they? But they impact and affect the people closest to us. It could be your spouse, your roommates, your teammates, people that are part of your work environment, people that are part of your church, your small group, your community group. Our actions have this potential, or even our inactions have this potential to impact ne- negatively. You know what it does? It undoes shalom. Peace. And what Jesus is making this promise to his people, he says, I promise you that one of these days I will repair shalom. Not just with you. Not just with me and you. Not just with you as individuals. Not just with you as families, but with all of the earth. Because look, at the end of the day, we realize you can be really well inside. You can have like, you know, perfect peace and shalom inside your heart. You can even have perfect peace and shalom with other relationships immediately around you. So let me put some feet on this. In other words, you might be like, look, I got a great marriage. I feel an inner peace in my heart. I'm, a, I'm, I'm fine with who I am. But as great as all that is, you still live in a world that's messed up. I mean, there's always threats on the news, right? You know, about being bombed by, you know, North Korea and, you know, I, Iran making nuclear bombs and all sorts of 
tragedies going on and scary things that are in this world. All of these things. The reality is we live in a world that is not at all at peace. And what God's promises people of Israel is I will take this world which has spiraled out of control into chaos and I will reorder it around myself. And once that happens, there will be perfect shalom, perfect peace, not just worldwide, but also in relationships and also within your heart. That's the promise that Jesus makes. So take a look at the next couple of verses, uh, a quote out of uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 says this, that he shall judge between the nations. It's a reference one day to Jesus coming, God at work through Jesus, his servant, that he shall judge between the nations and they shall decide disputes for the peoples, for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and their printing hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Next verse. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9 says this, And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, a reference to Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire of this resting place, or of his resting place shall be glorious. You know what God is saying here? Is that there is coming a time when shalom will not just simply be in your heart of hearts, it will be universally around this entire planet this entire world i will do something that will be so profound it will be like people rather than spending trillions of dollars to devise new ways to kill each other all that trillions of dollars then will be reinvested into agriculture into education into building up people for human flourishing that's exactly what isaiah 2 just said they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and printing hooks. Have we hit that place yet? Has it happened? No, it hasn't quite happened yet. All right? Is, is anybody still thinking that maybe it's happened in this world? No, it hasn't happened yet. It's yet to come. It's yet future. It hasn't happened yet. This is the promise that God says, I will one day make and bring about. It has not quite yet happened yet. So what if someone says, I refuse this? then they will go on into the place of self-destruction. What Jesus says is wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth, brokenness. And it's not because God somehow is deficient or failed. It's that God has made incredible promises that he says, I will be to you a bride, like a bridegroom, and I will wash you and cleanse you, and I will take care of you. But some would say, I don't want to be married to you. And this is the point that Jesus is making with his people. But his promise, no doubt, very clearly, is not only to their flourishing of reconciliation, but also to shalom, and finally, it's to their promise of restoration. Verses 21 to 23 says this. In that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth, and the earth will answer the grain, and the wine and the oil, and they will answer Jezreel. And up to this point, what God is actually doing is, you can almost describe it this way, it's sort of a promise of reversal. It's not only a promise of renewal, restoration, but it's also a promise of reversal. Because earlier on in the chapter, uh, God made a promise. Because what happened was his bride, uh, Israel, had not been faithful to God. So what God says is that because Israel keeps attributing, you know, the flourishing of their hands, the fact that they've got lots of grain in their pantries, the fact that their stores are filled with groceries, they keep recognizing or giving uh, recognition to Baal as being the one to provide everything. So God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take away all that grain so that they know that it's me. And then God says, I'm going to undo all that. I'm going to reverse all that. And what I will do is I will restore everything. 
I will give you back the grain. I will give you back everything that attributes to human flourishing because of my great promise to you. And then he goes on in verse 23 and says, And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy and no mercy. And I will not uh, those, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And you will say, you are my God. And what God is doing is actually, if you remember in the first chapter, when God called uh, Hosea to go marry uh, this gal by the name of Gomer to be his w- wife, uh, we're told that Gomer ended up having three children. And that God asked Hosea to name these three children. The three children that he named were, one was called uh, Jezreel, which meant uh, he, he sows or scattering. So think of sowing like sowing seed, not sowing like needle and thread. Sowing like seed. And it could also have a sort of a double meaning. That Israel sowed unrighteous acts. In other words, they had done evil and therefore God had forgotten that. And God was reminding of that. But it could also be a reference to the fact that one day God will actually, God will sow blessing. And this is what God is saying right here. The second name was uh, Lo Ruhama. And another one is Lo Ami. Both of those names, one meant uh, you are not my people. Imagine the name of your kid is like, you're not my, you're not my kid. So you know, go to the park, you're like, what's your kid's name? That ain't my kid. That's not your kid? Like, like who is it? Is that, it's not my kid. Like, what's the kid's name? I just told you the kid's name. It's not my kid. I'm really confused. All right. And God's saying that even though that was your child, and it bore testimony to the fact that my people are not acting like my people, God says, those who are not my people will become my people. Those who deserve, which is the name of another child, no mercy. Those who deserve no mercy will be shown mercy. And God says, I will undo everything that I promised. You know one of the things I think we learn about God in this particular setting? Is that God is far more gracious, far more eager to bring restoration than any of us can ever even begin to imagine. He's like a father who has to bring discipline to his kid, because this is what you know, good parents have to do. Every once in a while, you've got to discipline your kids. So if your kid acts up, you have to like say, you, know, you have time out. And, you know, I've got, I've got two great kids. Both of them are teenagers. And, you know, when they were young, um, you know, when they get older, you don't discipline them the same way they used to. But, you know, when they were young, we, di- we didn't really have to discipline them all that much. I mean, we were always, like, coaching them and guiding them and saying stuff like that. But the, at, at the end of the day, it was never like, you know, you're grounded for a month. I remember when I was a kid, like, there were several times my parents were like, you're grounded for a month. Like, like, that meant I couldn't go out, couldn't go surfing, I couldn't drive. Like, I, so you're like, I thought, you know, 16 when you're driving. Like, yes, I got in trouble a lot when I was a teenager. But the point of the matter is, back on track, is that what we see with God is God is like this parent that, he, yes, he has to intervene. Yes, he has to somehow set in order uh, a, a level of discipline. But he's this loving God that wants so eagerly to remove the discipline and restore them to right relationship that he's actually willing to break the grounding before it's complete. One of the things we love to do as a family is, uh, like I said, I have two daughters, both teenagers. We still love, on Friday nights, kind of like a Friday night, we have several nights throughout the week, but Friday night especially, we love to like either go out to eat or get some food and bring it home, and we'll watch a movie. We'll have like movie night. We'll all snuggle on the couch. We'll hang out, maybe make some popcorn. It's something we still love to do. So, Sometimes, even when my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, is, you know, off doing something else, she drives, um, and we tell her, like, oh, yeah, we're going to still do this. And she's like, ah, should I go? And we're like, just go. Just, just go hang out. That's, that's fine. You're, you're free to go do that. But she's like, still wants to, like, come out and hang at home and have popcorn and watch a movie and do stuff together. But when my kids were, were, were younger, I remember there were times, in fact, one time in particular, I remember I actually had a discipline of one of my kids. I'm like, you know, it might have been, like, Thursday. I can't remember the details. But I'm like, you're grounded. You can't watch TV for the next three nights. You're not being good, 
right? And Friday night comes around, I'm like, what do you do Friday night? Like, we're so used to like having family night and watching TV and hanging out and watching a movie. And, and, and like, like, it's not going to be the same Friday night. So I'm like sitting down with my daughter. I'm like, did you learn your lesson? I'm like, yeah, daddy. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, okay, you're free to go. Because <laughs> I just want to hang out. Like, I, I'm so eager to restore the relationship and just be with them and hang out with them. And here's the absolutely shocking thing. Jesus put it this way. You who are evil, who know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father, who's good, knows how to give good gifts to your children, his children. The point of the matter is, is that God loves to shower his people with goodness. And it's what we see God doing with his people of Israel. He's restoring to them. So the question, as we finish, final point, is God's plan. How does God go about doing this? So this has to bring us back to the final question, or the first question that we started with, and we'll finish with this. So the question, again, is restated. How can God remove the problem of Israel's destructive love affair with idols without destroying her? How do you go about that? Do you legislate love? You love me, otherwise I'm going to kill you. It doesn't work. That's called slavery. God's not that type of slave. Master. He would never do that. It's some sort of weird, crazy, cosmic relationship, if that was your impression. You cannot force a heart to love you. You have to prove a heart that you're lovable. So how does God go about it? Again, this is not just simply Israel doing senseless, mindless acts of betrayal on the one who loves her. This is Israel having a love affair multiple love affairs with multiple lovers on regular, frequent occasions, chronic occasions. God says, how am I going to remove this bondage-forming, destructive love affair that's lodged within the hearts of my people that's destroying them without casting Israel off forever? God rises up and he basically says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my love in open display, and I will prove to Israel that there is no other level, lover that rivals my love for Israel. I will prove to Israel, once and for all, beyond any comprehension, that once they begin to see the fact that Baal is a counterfeit, she will drop that $100 bill in an instant and run from it and run to the one that's the genuine. The moment you come to find out that that $100 bill is false. All of your little fantasies that you had about how you're going to spend that evaporate, don't they? And God says, here's what I'll do. I will show Israel and the world how great, how powerful, how absolutely promiscuous my love is. I will marry this prostitute back again. And this is why Paul would say, God has demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The issue that we wrestle with is do we truly believe that God loves us? The answer that God resoundingly comes back and shouts and echoes and reverberates is, absolutely i love you all of your counterfeit gods make great demands deliver little and in the end make you pay 
with compound interest. God says, I make great demands, deliver everything, and I will pick up the tab. I will restore because I'm a God who loves. That's just who I am, God would say. I love the unlovely. I love the unlovable. If you hear that message and you believe that message to the point where it shakes you, it will then begin to shape you. So rather than being cold-hearted, harboring things in your heart that are destructive, you are now free to love the unlovely because you know in God's eyes you were the unlovely prostitute who was loved, welcomed, cared for, nurtured, clothed, forgiven, given a new name, given a new life, given a new birth, given another chance. That's the story God called us into. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We'll respond. And what I want to do is I'm going to read a little quote. I read this, I don't know, every few months because it's just amazing. Of course, it's by C.S. Lewis. Lewis. You're like, who's it by? Of course. Of course. Did you think it, expect anybody else? All right. It's, it's a quote you guys have heard. Uh, if you haven't heard it, enter into it. Here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, we are like ignorant. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Israel is too easily satisfied. She's settled for a counterfeit. Are you? Is that what your heart's holding on to? I plead with you. If it is. Turn from that. The Bible's word for that is repent, turn, and turn to the genuine. Your idols, your false hopes, your inordinate desires that lead you to hold on to these things, they deceive you. They make all these promises. They deliver little, and at some point they enslave you, and you are trapped, and what you need is to be delivered. This is why we have an unbelievably good, loving God who says, I will come into this world and I will be trapped in their place. Nailed to a cross, trapped, bound, trapped. So that they can be given this exchange, rather than being trapped, can be given freedom, life, love, that changes, melts away their cynicism removes their stain of sin, welcomes them into a family of love. Some of you might be like, wow, that's really good news. You're right. That's why we call it gospel. It is good news. It's unbelievable good news. And it's the truth that God calls us into. Let's respond. We're going to respond by singing. We have communion in the back. We have some rugs in front. If you just want to get in your face before Jesus, we're going to have some people off to the side would love to pray for you. Just have some ministry time, whatever it's going on in your life. Maybe you're trapped. Maybe there's issues where you find yourself trapped in. Maybe issues of the heart. Maybe issues of unforgiveness or unresolved issues in your life that are just broken. And you find yourself breaking apart under this oppressive master that's crushing you. You're not free. You're not free to love other people. You're not free to love those that are unlovely. It means you're not free. 
Jesus wants to set you free. Of some people that would love to pray for you, pray over you. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to sing, to worship, to love, and respond. We want to do that now.